I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, Weapons of Math Destruction with Kathy O'Neill. Isn't that nice? Kathy O'Neill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So your book is based on the idea that there are these algorithms that, that run in the background of our day-to-day lives. And you know, for the most part, many of them are, are harmless, right? You know, they, they do good things, like they deliver you know, better search results for a shopping site, for instance. But then you have this term, weapons of math destruction, which is what your book title is based on. When does the data and, and the algorithm become harmful? How do you define weapons of math destruction? I'm sorry, I'm like stuck on this idea that Although I do say that most algorithms are benign, I don't think that the Google search algorithm is. So I don't want to give the impression um, right off the bat that like it's easy to figure out whether a given algorithm is destructive or not. So although I agree with you that most algorithms are benign, I feel like the ones that are used as commonly as things to search for websites or something are definitely very, very important algorithms and have to be like interrogated very carefully. But to, to answer your question, a weapon of math destruction, since I'm a mathematician, I'd I characterize things with properties. So a weapon of math destruction is characterized with three properties. It's an algorithm that is very widespread, used by a lot of people and used to make important decisions about people. That's the first characteristic. So like typically it's a scoring system that is used to sort of decide whether someone gets an option or not. Like, do they get the credit card or not? Do they get the mortgage or not? Do they get the job or not? That kind of thing. So it's important Uh, widespread, used on a lot of people. That's the first thing. The second characteristic is that it has to be secret. So it's like a a scoring system, but people don't know, they don't understand their score. They don't know how to improve their score. They don't know what they needed to do in their past to have gotten a better score. Maybe they couldn't do anything in the past, but they wouldn't know. And they in particular wouldn't know if it was wrong um, because they don't know what's going into it or how it works. And so when you have something that's important and secret, what typically happens is that it fails, but no one knows. No one knows it's failed. There's no appeals system because it's like usually just this black box that's just telling you the answer and you just have to accept it, even if it's wrong. And so the final third property of a weapon of mass destruction is that it is unfair sometimes. It's wrong, that it's destructive to individuals. So individuals fail to get the options they deserve because their score was wrong. As sort of a byproduct of those three properties, though, I'll, I'll mention that just as an observation that I've noticed that it's not only unfair to the individual and not only destructive to their lives, but typically ends up being destructive to society. It ends up sort of undermining its original goal and creating some kind of culturally wide feedback loop that actually ends up making us all worse off. Right. So the first two things you mentioned being, you know, affecting a large group of people and being secretive, it seems like those two things would come hand in hand, right? Like if there's a really large company whose algorithms will affect a large group of people, just by by the nature of its large company, their algorithms are usually secretive. That's a standard approach. I mean, that's the way our legal system works. We protect algorithms. Our legal system protects algorithms. That's the way we do it. It doesn't have to be that way, but that's the way we've set it up. Yes, I agree. I was just trying to think of an example of an algorithm from a large company or that affected a large data set that wasn't secretive, and I couldn't think of one. Well, I mean, so I think the closest to not secret that we have in terms of algorithms are I'll give you two examples. They're both somewhat secret, but they're not as secret as some of the things I worry about. So um, the FICO score is one of them. So we have nowadays, we have apps where you can check your FICO score. Now that's not to say it's transparent. We don't even know exactly how it's created, but given that we can check it all the time, it's a kind of transparency. 
Um, we also happen to know because it's very highly regulated, a lot of the data that goes into it or doesn't go into it. Like, so for example, we're allowed to get our credit report on a bi-yearly basis, I believe. And that shows you all the data that's going into your credit score. Nothing else is allowed to go in. Um, and that matters because, you know, if it's wrong, you get to correct it. That's part of the law that protects you with, with respect to FICO scores. So I'd say that's a level of transparency that you're afforded with FICO scores by law that you are not afforded by any of the other algorithms I talk about. Um, the, the other example I wanted to mention is something I talk about in one of my chapters called the U.S. News and World Report College Ranking System, oh, yeah. which again, isn't entirely transparent. We don't know exactly how it works, but we know a lot about how it works. We don't know exactly what the weights of the sort of metrics that go into it are, but let me put it this way. We know it well enough that the college administrators are successful at gaming it. Right. So they know what they need to do to get their ranking higher. So it's in some sense, it's sufficiently transparent to be gamed, um, which is not entirely transparent. And for that matter, I should say that like there's been a, quite a few college ranking systems developed by the New York Times, by the Wall Street Journal, and even by the Obama administration um, that really did make it transparent. With a, with a specific aim to make it possible for people to figure out not only what schools have good reputations academically, but what schools are reasonably priced and whether their students graduate on time and whether students go on to get good jobs, et cetera. So there are algorithms out there that have certain levels of transparency. You should think of it as a spectrum in any case, but I would yeah. say that, yeah, there's there's... The, the spectrum, like if you think about the spectrum approach, then nothing is entirely transparent that's being used by a huge corporation, but there are, you know, gradations of, of transparency. And you talk about the idea of a person's, you know, personal ideology kind of skewing the data. And you use the example of a family dinner as a data model, which is a perfect way to describe this. Can you explain how that works and how, you know, for instance, you gave the example of you know, someone who has to prepare a family dinner and, you know, they've got four people to prepare a meal for and one person doesn't like peas or one person's like gluten intolerant and they have to optimize the meal, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I thought it was really good. <laughs> I thought, I, well, the example is like what an algorithm algorithm is at all, right? So I, mean, I think some people, when they hear the word algorithm, they just freeze up because they think, oh, I'm not very good at math or whatever. I didn't like math in junior high or whatever it is. And my point with that example is that like we all actually use algorithms all the time. And so it's not as scary as it sounds. Like we use algorithms in our own head to decide what to cook for dinner. And the, that was my example. Like I cook, I the algorithm I use to cook for my family incorporates all this kind of information I've learned over time about what kinds of vegetables and and what do they enjoy and whether there is enough meat and whether there's enough, you know, bread and things like that. Um, and then at the end of the meal, I decide whether it's a success based on whether my kids ate enough vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> and the point, the point I'm trying to make, actually two points I want to make with that is that first of all, like, there's nothing inherently nuanced or objective about that. I, in particular, insert my agenda by deciding that a successful meal is is one where my kids ate vegetables. This is clearly not what my child who loves Nutella would have chosen. He would have chosen, uh, you know, crepes with Nutella. Um <laughs> for every meal. And he's never going to get crepes with Nutella for dinner because that will never be the product of my optimized algorithm. <laughs> I optimized to success and I define success to be vegetables. Um, and the second point is that like, I get to make the definition of success because I am in charge. So it's really a power thing. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I mean, if not the reason I wrote the book is like, we should not be afraid of algorithms, even if we're afraid of math, you know, because algorithms are basically secret rules. 
And there are secret rules being made by people that we don't know. And there are secret rules being made by people we don't know for their own benefit, not for our benefit, generally speaking. And they have optimized to their definition of success, which sometimes is, but not always is aligned with our definition of success. Right. Because I think that's the that's the problem. That's when it becomes problematic, right? When they determine that, you know, this data is important because of my personal view. Well, I mean, I would just, you know, just to throw out a timely example of that, like Facebook is now getting in trouble because their entire business model is based on using us as products. We are the product. Our attention is the product. It's not optimized to us, right? It's not optimized for what we want. In fact, their algorithm, which is the Facebook newsfeed, optimizes to engagement, which is another way of saying optimizes to us spending more time on Facebook, which makes them more money. So it's not surprising why they're optimizing to their own profit. But in particular, it does not optimized about what we care about. What we care about, you know, is things like, you know, truth and civil disagreement. Um, but they optimize to outrage and conspiracy theories and fake news. And that is a problem for us. So it's a, it's a, just a great example of how like when they've optimized to that themselves rather than to us, they end up optimizing away from us. And that's a typical situation. A typical arrangement is if you don't optimize to something, you actually end up optimizing away from it. It's not as if these goals somehow line up magically. They typically do not. Yeah, I actually heard that point on, actually it was an interview on NPR the other day that there's been this philosophical question about Facebook and what their product actually is. And it's becoming clearer that the users are actually their product. And I think that speaks to why big companies like that want to keep their algorithms and their data so secretive is because I think if people understood that they were the product, they wouldn't be so willing to give up that information. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I Honestly, I've stopped. I've stopped trying to understand people in this sense because... I feel like it's been pretty clear for a while now that we are the product and that our data has been hijacked and distributed to whoever's asking for it. But now, these last couple of weeks with the whole brouhaha over Cambridge Analytica, people are shocked. And I'm like, well, wait, what did you think was happening? I'm just very confused by it. And people are asking me to sort of have a take on the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal. But like, I wrote about that in 2015. You know, I wrote about yeah. it like, we, this is not a surprise to me. What surprises me is that people are surprised. Yeah. And and speaking of, you know, Facebook's involvement with politics, it was, you know, even during the Obama and Mitt Romney campaign, even with Obama's first campaign, they were doing experiments with data in relation to how people responded to certain political messaging. Right. So it wasn't really a secret back then. Like, thank you for saying that it was not only was it not a secret, but it was they bragged about it. People bragged about it. Um, The Obama analytics team bragged about using Facebook data and getting the friend graph of Obama supporters and using that graph to push for more support for Obama. I mean, it was like exactly the same kind of thing that Cambridge Analytica has been accused of doing. I I honestly, to be frank uh, with you, I honestly think the outrage is much more around the fact that it was for Republicans than anything else, that it was for Trump. I mean, we were all proud of, when I say we, not me, I, (laughs) I actually confronted one of the people who worked in that. And I said, you know, this is not good for democracy. This whole like micro-targeting political ads um, is not good for democracy because it's very asymmetrical. If you know all this data about voters, that means you actually know more about them than they know about you. 
And it allows you to give them just the message that you want them to see, rather than the message that they actually need to hear for democracy to work. I mean, democracy isn't just about the ability to vote. The democracy is about being an informed citizen. And by dint of this very tailored advertising, Obama's team managed to give a very sort of narrow view of what Obama stood for. I'm not saying that it was hard to find information about Obama, but when this gets iterated out six or seven election cycles, like we will not know what to think about a given candidate because not only online, we're going to get these tailored messages, but if we go to their websites, they're going to recognize us and they're going to give us the same tailored messages. When we go on television, television is aiming to be tailored as well. There will be no place for us to go to get a broad view of a candidate because every place we go, the candidate will say, oh, we know who you are and we're going to show you exactly what we want you to see. Anyway, I I put this to one of the people who had worked in Obama's analytics team and their response was basically, well, we're ahead of the Republicans, so it's okay. Yeah. You know, but that's a uh, that's a really tough one, right? Because it's really hard to separate yourself when you're on the team and that team is winning. You think that you're on the right side. But that's it's really tough to say that, you know, yes, this data can be used for evil or it can be used for good. It's 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 hard to admit that. Yeah, I've got right. nothing to say about that. Yeah, I have nothing to say. I mean, look, but, what you're saying yeah. is like, oh, people are partisan. Yeah. People want to win. Yeah, okay. That's not good for democracy. Yeah. Sometimes the dirty tricks really are dirty. I think this is one of those times. So can I ask you, so Facebook also did some of their own experiments, right? They did this, I voted today campaign, right? right. They could post. And so I don't, I don't really understand the purpose of that, right? Like what kind of data were they trying to gather from people's responses for that? Oh, that was a very, very important experiment. What they did was they showed people that their friends had voted and they saw, they actually did the experiment. It was like some of them, they just said, your friends have voted. Whereas others, they showed pictures of their friends who had voted. So it was much more visceral that, you know, this friend of yours has voted. Yeah. Um, they figured out, you know, did you vote? And they, they asked the question, did you vote? And then they, they figured out that the response rate was much higher for people who saw those pictures. I hope, I hope I'm getting it right. I think that was their experiment. Um, and so the idea was that they were actually influencing people to go out and vote because their friends, it was kind of a peer pressure sort of mediated through Facebook. Why did they do that? Well, I think they did that partly out of intellectual curiosity. To what extent do we have influence? How can we exert peer pressure through our Facebook. But I think a very important part of that is that you have to understand that Facebook makes billions of dollars in political campaign money. So they wanted to prove to the political campaigns that were their future customers, like that we in fact have influence on people's voting behavior. So therefore you should pay us to influence your voters. It was simply a business model, right? but it was also a very convincing business model. I mean, what they did by accident in some sense was they exhibited that they really do have power to influence people um, and their vote. And so, um, or at least they seem to, I mean, it wasn't a perfect experiment, but it was a pretty good experiment. So like, you know, that's kind of proving my point though. Like you have an algorithm here that's very influential It's secret in the sense that people don't understand how things show up on their timeline. Um, And the question is, is it destructive? And is it destructive? I mean, I think it's I think it's corroding democracy. 
especially given the fact that they could, Facebook, for example, could decide just to show Democratic voters the I voted button and they could swing an election right. because they decided who to show it to and who not to show it to. Like, it's just not a Democratic concept that we have this sort of group of nerds sitting in Silicon Valley who have that much power. You know, this, there may be an obvious answer to this, but how is this different from the 1950s where, you know, Sears would market, you know, they put on the floor dishwashers <laughs> because they knew that at noon housewives would come in and they, they would shop, right? And so they were using the data that they had that, you know, their targeted customer would come into the store at a particular time and they would put the right merchandise on the floor. How is this different? There's always been manipulative, you know, nudges. The difference is that this is democracy itself. That was just consumer behavior. We're, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with people being nudged to be extra consumer oriented. Like, that is not my thing. My, I mean, I think there are some activists who work on like anti-consumerism. That's not my niche. My niche is like, I think democracy should be allowed to work. And what you're doing is you're deciding who's going to vote. That that's manipulative in a way that I think is not reasonable. Now, having said that, like I think a better analogy would be, you know, there've always been get out the vote campaigns. Yeah. And that's true. There's always been manipulation in politics. Get out the vote campaigns sounds really great, but of course it was Republicans getting out the Republican vote and Democrats getting out the Democratic vote. And that's true. Although, you know, that has changed as well in the age of big data in the sense that like basically Republican get out the vote campaigns didn't know exactly who voted Republican, like after all. Um, So they would sort of blanket a neighborhood with get out the vote nudges where the neighborhood was known to be a Republican dominated neighborhood. That was kind of a crude but relatively effective way of getting out the Republican vote and some with Democrats. Uh, But nowadays, they know everything. They know who you voted for and your likelihood of voting. They can can do get out the vote campaigns in a fine-tuned manner down to the, you know, let's only care about swing states, let's only care about swing voters, or let's only care about people that may or may not vote. And like, you know, they can can do it very minutely. What that ends up doing is, of course, like most people don't, don't matter at all. Most votes end up not mattering. They don't get any attention. Right. Um, I'll add, by the way, that one thing I worried about when I wrote the first edition of the book that actually happened in between that edition and and the sort of the soft cover where I got to write an an extra piece afterward was that not only do we have get out the vote tailored ads, we now have voter suppression ads that actually happened at at sort of the tail end of the 2016 presidential election, which again, like that is that's new. That's new. That didn't happen as far as I know um, until it could have happened the way it did, which was the Trump campaign sort of trying to squelch the vote of African-Americans, among others, um, by sending them messages saying things like, you know, don't forget Hillary Clinton said that word super predator right. back in the 80s. Right. Um, and, you know, my feeling about it is like it's actually even grosser than that in the sense that like I expect that we'll find, you know, subtler versions of it where it's not even like Hillary Clinton said this or not even like, you know, the bad candidate said such and such. It'll be much more subtle, like, oh, you look fat today. And because they'll, fi- they'll figure out that like people who have been insulted or people who feel fat don't tend to vote. Oh. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So it won't even be like obviously political. Yeah. It'll just be like, we're going to make you feel not like voting. Interesting. Anyway, that's my like, that's my worry. Long story short, I worry about, I worry about democracy. I don't worry about consumer behavior. Yeah, I'm worried. I'm worried now too. 
<laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was thinking when I read one of the stories about the kind of voter suppression ads that were put out. And I remember one, and they weren't just ads. So they were, they were posts and there were groups. Groups were actually formed on Facebook and, you know, in other places. Right. There was one called um, Woke Blacks Against Hillary, right. which I found particularly, you know, offensive being that I'm African-American. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so was, it, was that a Russian one? That was a Russian one. But still, it, yeah. it's, it's the same in that. They, right. Right. They're totally appropriating the concept of woke, which was bound to happen, but it's like, come on. Well, but it's just that, you know, with, with so much data, you can truly understand the psychology of your targeted consumer at a level that wasn't available before. Yep. Right? That, you know, African Americans are vulnerable to being pushed to stay at home, right? That data yep. 20 years ago would not have been available. And, you know, they don't just know that that data exists. They know exactly who is vulnerable to that. Yeah. Apparently. So. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about the criminal justice system, right? Sure. Um, this this was really interesting to me because a lot of people are familiar with the statistics around African Americans and Hispanic Americans, you know, having greater contact with the police. You know, they make up a larger percentage of the prison population. But how that correlates to big data and to algorithms, I think, is is not visible to people, right? And and I think that's the missing piece. At least it was for me until I read your book. So can you explain how this works and how what you call a pernicious feedback loop, how that plays into the criminal justice system? Yeah, there's basically two ways it happens. So the first is at the level of policing and the second is at the level of the courts. So uh, the policing kind of goes first. And so, I mean, many of your listeners will know that there has been like a ridiculous and racist history of policing and like recent history of what's called broken windows theory of policing, which is to say like they explicitly went out and arrested and harassed mostly uh, minority men in poor neighborhoods for doing stuff that they would not have bothered a white person about. And that was an explicit part of the theory of broken windows policing that they were like, yeah, we're, we're not going to let you get away with the stuff that you might have gotten away with in a different neighborhood because the theory was that if we get you on the little things, you're not going to become a violent criminal. But the artifact of that, of that practice, which I'll, I'll refer to as uneven policing in a polite way, yeah. um, the, the artifact of uneven policing is that you have way more data on people getting arrested for nonviolent crimes like smoking pot for poor black boys than you do for rich white boys, even though everyone smokes pot at the same rate, basically, if you if you break it down by age, but you change the race. So like white people and black people at different age ranges smoke pot at the same rates. But the, if you look at the statistics, um, like blacks are five times more likely to be arrested. The way I say this is I say there's a lot of missing crime data. We don't really have crime data. In fact, we have like arrest data. We have reported crime data, blah, blah, blah. But we don't have crime data. Like most crimes do not lead to arrest. And smoking pot even mostly doesn't lead to arrest. But the missingness isn't equally distributed. So there's way more missing white crime than there is missing black crime data. And so there's a bias in the data. Now, the reason this matters is because the way algorithms are used in policing is they look for the locations of previous arrests. They send the cops to those locations to find crime. So they're looking at these arrest records, which I just said, a very biased sample, especially when you include low-level crimes and nuisance crimes and crimes of poverty like peeing in public when you don't have access to public bathrooms. 
if you're poor or turnstile jumping or things like that. So what we're seeing is sort of politically speaking, we're seeing a sort of withdrawal from the concept of the theory of broken windows policing. We're seeing like police chiefs say, oh, we don't do that stuff anymore. But we're still doing it because we're using these algorithms, which depend on historical bias data to decide where to send the police. And so it's continuing the cycle of uneven policing, but it's calling it scientific. We don't describe it as a um, broken windows policing policy anymore. We just describe it as scientific policing, but it ends up being the same thing. So it ends up continuing this feedback loop where we say we criminalized black men, especially, and then the data gets fed to the system and the data tells us go find more crimes among black men. Right, right. So just to kind of give a, a simpler version. So you've got two two young men, two 18-year-olds, one black, one white, you know, one maybe on a college campus in a, a suburban neighborhood, you know, one in a more urban neighborhood, a poorer neighborhood. And, you know, both are out on a Friday night and, you know, they're underage and they're caught drinking or maybe they aren't caught drinking. The poorer area is more heavily policed. There's a greater chance that the black 18-year-old is going to have contact with the police than the white 18-year-old, right? And then so that they Data is fed into these predictive models and the data spits out, you know, well, you know, this black neighborhood needs more policing. You have more police on the street. And so you have more black 18 year olds who have contact with police. So is that the feedback loop? Yep. You got it. Now, I'll I'll add a couple more things, which is that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you got it that you nailed it. Never mind. No, come on. There must be more. Well, I'll I'll just say that, like, I I would say that, like, you know, having grown up in a white suburban area with a bunch of pot smoking friends, like, it's also just easier to hide in somebody's parents' basement if you're in a well-off suburb than it is if you're in a poor neighborhood. There's just more places to not be seen by the police. So even if we had the same density of police walking the streets in white neighborhoods, which we don't, but even if we did, I think the rates wouldn't even out because we'd still have more spaces for richer people to hide. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, no, I get that. Yeah. So I think there's a a couple effects going on, but I do think that you nailed the effect that I was trying to mention. Yeah. And so is that how a person's, you know, personal biases enters into the the data model, right? You have a, a single police officer who chooses to pay attention to this nuisance crime, right? When they could, they could just kind of walk away, right? You know, someone who's, you know, peeing on the side of a building or who, I don't know, is doing something that is irritating, but is not truly a risk to the community. Like they have a choice. They have a choice to not stop that person. Right. Is that how bias is introduced here? So the bias here is the bias of the data itself, which is not just a given individual policeman, but rather like the way policing is framed in society itself, like what is criminalized. Instead of thinking about like, oh, a cop that could or could not arrest somebody for peeing, you should be thinking like, well, why is that illegal? Yeah. Why is that a crime? Why is smoking pot a crime? Yeah. Um, shouldn't we be looking at around and saying, there's so many people peeing on the sidewalk, we should install public bathrooms. Or there's so many people smoking pot, um, we should just legalize it because it's actually not as bad as alcohol. <laughs> right. You know, um, so I feel like for that matter, just recently on the NPR, I've been hearing these really great documentary um, pieces about of the sort of criminalization of mental health problems. So we're, we're arresting people who are untreated mental health victims, right? Uh, uh, sufferers. That's a choice we're making as a society. So I don't, I guess what I'm saying is I want to blame the system more than the individual cop. Like an individual cop could theoretically get in trouble for not arresting anyone who does a bunch of things that are technically crimes, even though they're not really hurting anyone. You know, like that's his job. 
or her job. It's her, his or her job to arrest people for crimes. The question we should be asking ourselves is why are these crimes? Um, Like, and, and, and I'll say another way of saying this is like, if we focused on actual criminal acts, like violent crimes, then these algorithms would be very, very different. Yeah. And in particular, they'd be a lot less, quote unquote, predictive. One of the reasons that the data scientists love including the low level nuisance crimes like smoking pot is because they're very easy to predict. And for that matter, so is peeing on the sidewalk. Poor people pee on the sidewalk because we still aren't going to give them public bathrooms. <laughs> said another way, said another way, like if we install public bathrooms like we should everywhere, then the model would mess up the model would appear inaccurate because the model would be predicting all these crimes that are no longer happening. Do you see what I mean? So like the model is just going by our practices as a society, our decisions about what constitutes crime. And that's what we should be scrutinizing rather than the individual cop who's doing their job. I'm not saying there's not bad cops. There definitely are. But I'm just saying that like, I wouldn't say, hey, to an individual cop, like you're screwing up this data. I would say we're screwing up this data because, you know, said another way, like, why didn't we go down to Wall Street and arrest all the bankers after the financial crisis? Yeah. There's no answer to that. Like we, we didn't do it because we didn't, we decided we didn't want to do it. We decided that's not what crime looks like to us. I think that's what we need to re-examine is how we decide what crime looks like and, you know, why we're so comfortable with it looking like poor black people. Yeah, well, so two things there. So do you think that it's problematic? I guess what I've noticed is that there seems to be this conflation of the actions of an individual person, right? Whenever there is some shooting of an African-American and the police officer was clearly in the wrong, they conflate that with the statistics of why so many African-Americans are in prison. And those two things get conflated. And you're saying, that to truly fix the larger problem, we should look at the larger data set? Is that- We don't, and the problem is that we, this is one of the hardest problems actually in the world of data is that we don't have the data in that larger data set. I see. Right? So that's what I was saying when I said we don't have crime data. Like we don't have crime data. Yeah. So it's really, it's and it's and it's a very difficult problem because people are so used to thinking that of course poor black neighborhoods are crime ridden and richer white neighborhoods aren't. Like they're so used to thinking that that they think they have good data. They just convince themselves that they have good data when they really don't have good data. Do you see what I mean? And it's not just smoking pot. A similar type of story could be told around child abuse, for example. Like I grew up in a white town where there was like almost all my friends had child abuse problems in their homes. Yeah. But they were not the ones getting scrutinized. And, and that's still true. Like there's this really good book that just came out um, called um, Automating Inequality by Virginia Eubanks. There's a really great chapter on the Allegheny County in Pennsylvania child abuse hotline algorithm. Um, and that just goes very deeply into just how much more likely you are to be in trouble as parents with this system if you are poor, um, because the system just has so much more information about you that could raise red flags than if you're rich. Like if you are on social welfare, if you live in public housing, you know, if you were ever in the homeless system, if you were ever on Medicaid, if you were in the child welfare system when you were a kid, you know, now you're a parent. Like there's so many more touch points for poor families with the system itself. And the system is using all that information to decide who is at risk 
of abusing their kid. Now, obviously the goal is to protect children and we all want that to happen. Right. But the point is that the system is almost inherently biased. It is inherently biased because it is missing so much data. So richer families who are abusing their kids do not have to leak their data to the system the way that poor yeah. families leak their data. Um, and that, you know, that's not good news for those richer kids that are getting abused. So when you ask, how do we address this? It's really, really hard to address this with data because the, the whole point is that we don't have the right data, right? Um, and it leads to a, like a sort of more philosophical question, which is like, what problems can we solve using data? And I'm not trying to suggest that every problem can be solved using data. Sometimes we have such a bad data set that the problem is intractable from the point of view of data. Yeah, you know, one of the things, interesting things I, I read in your book was about judges who use recidivism models, yeah. right, to determine sentencing, right? And yep. that's another piece of the whole criminal justice yep. system. So you know, there's greater touch points, right, for African-Americans with the criminal justice system. And then once you're in the system... The sentencing. Can you explain how that works, that, that feedback loop? Yeah, that, that's the most pernicious feedback loop from my perspective, which is that, as you said, like judges use these scoring systems to decide what the recidivism risk is for a given defendant. And recidivism means coming back to prison. So what is the risk of someone coming back? And really, they don't have to come back all the way to prison. They just have to get rearrested. So as I just said earlier, arrest rates for some people are much higher than for others. So that's a pretty low bar, first of all, to target. But also the actual risk scores are made up by a questionnaire that asks ridiculously bad questions. Like when I say bad, like they're proxies for race and class straight up. So they ask questions right. like, do you live in a high crime neighborhood? Did you finish high school? Did you get suspended <laughs> from high school? Some of them are even unconstitutional in the sense that using these this information against you should not give you more jail time or, or prison time. One of the questions is, did your father go to prison? Literally. Right. Yeah. Um, so as you can imagine, and it has been proven by a ProPublica audit of the Compass recidivism risk score, as you can imagine, this is a, basically a profiling tool. And it profiles you for the likelihood that you will be picked up by the cops within two years after leaving prison. And so risk scores for black men are much higher than for white men. It's really pseudoscience in the sense that judges are being given this stuff theoretically to even out their known racism because judges are known to be racist. So the idea of these scores in the beginning was like, oh, well, let's balance their bias with these scientific scores. But the scores themselves, of course, are not more than profiling tools. So they're not very scientific. Um, and as you point out, there is a larger feedback loop here. And the feedback loop is, you know, you go in because of your demography, because of where you grew up, because of the color of your skin, you are seen to be high risk, you're put in prison for longer, and being put in prison for longer doesn't help people. And so by the time you're out of prison, you have even fewer connections to your community, you have an even harder time getting a job, and you end up more likely to go back to prison. So in the, in the sense, these scoring systems are creating their own reality. Like by dint of giving you a higher score, they're making you more likely to return to prison. Um, and that's exactly the kind of feedback loop that I worry about the most. Right. I find that really worrying too. I'll say one piece of good news that I've learned since the book came out. And I wrote about this for Bloomberg when I was talking about bail reform. But it turns out that some of the judges who are using these scoring systems basically just ignore them. Um, so that's an interesting fact. So uh, that might change, of course, like if the judges are are required, are mandated to follow the risk score system. You know, sometimes 
judges are mandated to follow like sentencing guidelines or something. If that kind of thing happens, then that's it's going to be a totally different story. But right now, it seems like many of the judges just ignore the score altogether, which isn't to say that it's not having any effect. I don't know. It's hard to tease out the kind of effect it's having. But my guess is that if it is having an effect, it's not a particularly positive one and it's quite racist. Right. And well, the thing that's really harmful about it is the fact that they can often hide behind the fact that, you know, hey, this is just data. This is not my personal decision, you know, and they're just saying, well, you know, the algorithm did it. I had nothing to do with this. Right. Even though the numbers, the output of the numbers shows something that's clearly different that, you know, I think African-Americans represent, I don't know what percentages of the prison population, but it's much higher than they represent in the actual population. Correct. Right. So you look at these numbers and you say there's something wrong. And then you look at the judges and they say, well, it wasn't me. It was the data. Right. Right. And you know what they'll say? They'll say, oh, but look at the look at the arrest records. Of course, they're going to be higher risk because they do so many more crimes, which, again, is a fallacy because it's really that they get arrested so much more often for crimes. Right. And then another Another point you bring up about, you know, speaking of missing data, when people are in prison, so you have this kid, you know, this, let's say the same 18 year old, you know, who's on the streets and he's been picked up and, you know, finally he has a longer prison term, you know, because of these recidivism models. And um, while he's in prison, there is no tracking of his experience right yeah. while in prison right. and and how that's going to affect whether he reoffends or not when he comes out of prison. That's right. So you're exactly right. One of my fantasies is it was just never going to happen. Never going to happen. But like, I'll just have it anyway, which is that, you know, we really go with the data driven. We really go data with, with this, with the prison system. And what that would require is that we collect information on all sorts of things, including like tracking which police are more likely to use force. That's happening in small places, in small ways now, but like, let's do that on a national level. Or we could say, let's track who's in solitary confinement and who gets punished for what and whether they have access to GED education or other kinds of educational resources or libraries or tutoring. Um, And like, what kind of effects do those have? It's not like nothing like that is ever being done, but it's being done in fits and starts and it's not systemic. So the the idea that we're becoming data-driven is just simply not true. I talked earlier about my dinner model where I was like, I define success for my family dinner as my kids eating vegetables and then I optimize to success. Um, Along those lines, like, what are we optimizing to in sentencing people to prison? Like, what is even our goal for prison sentencing? I have never heard an answer to that. And it's really frightening because like in other countries, especially Northern Europe, like they have a very particular goal, which is like rehabilitation and getting people prepared for a normal life on the outside. And they really work at that. But that doesn't seem to be our goal, according to our practice. So what is our goal? And can we define that? And can we have a conversation about that? Because a data-driven justice system would require that conversation. You gave a really disturbing example of these stop-and-frisk laws. So we know that those are problematic. But what I didn't know is that sometimes police officers, when they would stop people, they would take photos of them with an iPad and upload them into a database, a face recognition database. What is going on with that? I mean... Every city, as far as I can tell, in the in the country has is starting to have or has certainly New York has cameras on all sorts of street corners. Right. And they're starting to also have facial recognition software like working on those cameras. You know, basically, as soon as you've interacted with the police, they have you in their system. From their perspective, what they're doing is making it easier for you to be identified if you're in a later crime scene. 
um, and you're picked up by a camera. By the way, this is happening in China to even crazier extent. They're doing this thing where they're forcing school kids um, in some sort of like ethnic minority area to spit into envelopes so that they can have samples of their DNA on file. And their argument for doing this is that this is just in case they ever commit a crime in the future. Wow. It is absolutely insane. You know, it, it goes to the sort of the fundamental problem that I tried to mention at the beginning of like the definition of success is controlled by the person who has the power and the person who controls the algorithm. And they literally don't need to care and often don't care about the sort of suffering on behalf of the people that are not them, right? So they only think about themselves. They're like, what do I want from this algorithm? The answer is I want to be able to identify someone in case there's a crime. They don't ask the question like, is this a privacy violation of the people who will never commit a crime? Or the, like what I call the false positives, like people who are caught up in the system, but don't actually end up doing anything, don't deserve to be in the system, right? Um, and then you could ask the question of like, does anybody need, deserve to be in a system simply because they caught the eye of a cop one day when they end up being convicted of a crime? One of the things that I worry about with algorithms is that they're so one-sided, like whoever builds them is somehow treated like they have godlike powers yes. and that they have no accountability and they don't need to think beyond their own goals. And I, I worry, especially in the context of the justice system, but also in, in other contexts that we haven't even gotten to, like HR, hiring people, firing people. I worry in all of those contexts that you're just literally doing illegal things, possibly unconstitutional things, and you're not even thinking about it because you're so focused on what you want. Right. And you're not focused at all on the rights that you're violating of the people who are subject to your algorithm. Yeah, that was the thing about your book. You go through every facet of life, like, you know, the criminal justice system, the, the political system, right? Um, getting a job once you're in a job. And one of the examples that was so interesting to me was this resume scanning software. It weeded out people with ethnic sounding names, which I can't even figure out how that happened. You know, so it affects whether you get a job or not. Oh, yeah, it absolutely does. One of the people I profiled in the book was Kyle Beam, who seemingly got filtered out of, a, of an algorithm simply because he has bipolar disorder. Like they had embedded a mental health assessment into the personality test that they forced him to take. Yeah. Which, by the way, most people who apply online to minimum wage jobs actually have to go through. They have to take a personality test in order to even be uh, interviewed by a human being. So this one personality test, which, by the way, Kyle took in seven different contexts for seven different jobs with chain stores. So not seven different places to work, but like many, many, many places to work. They all had exactly the same test and they all had that same exact flaw, which was the mental health assessment, you know, embedded inside the algorithm. And he got filtered out from all of them, which is illegal, by the way. The, his father, who's a lawyer, he said, wait a second, the Americans with Disability Act makes it illegal to force someone to take a health exam, including a mental health exam, as part of a hiring process. So he's actually sued all seven companies. Wow. Um, and thank God he has. But like, the truth is, like, it was very lucky for Kyle to identify that mental health assessment inside that algorithm. And second of all, to have access to a lawyer at all. Most people who are applying for minimum wage work don't have access to a lawyer. So it was a couple of different strokes of luck that this even happened. Most of the time, I should say, these kinds of flaws in algorithms are not caught. The failures are not seen. They're invisible. But yet they filter people out unfairly. So Kathy, now that I'm sufficiently worried, is there anything that we can do about any of this? I will say there's basically four things that I would suggest that we need to turn into standards, if not laws. 
And I'm, I'm glad about the Cambridge Analytica scandal for Facebook, because I think people are finally thinking in terms of, wait, wait what kind of regulation do we need? And I'm like, okay, finally, let's talk. Um, and the four things that I think should be standards, if not laws, are the following. First, before introducing an algorithm, an important algorithm into a situation, we have to make sure that it is better than the human process it is replacing. We still don't know if judges have become less or more racist with the presence of recidivism risk scores. We just don't know. It wasn't tested. It was just assumed that the scoring systems would make things better. But that's not a good assumption. Um, so that's the first thing. Make sure it's actually an improvement. And by the way, what, what I like about that is it'll force us to, to talk about what the goal is in the first place. So what does it mean to be an improvement? We almost never actually talk Turkey in terms of like, what does it mean for this to work well? So let's define the definition of success and let's see if the algorithm actually makes things better or worse. That's the first thing. The second thing is let's keep track of for whom this algorithm fails. There was an interesting article a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times with work by my friend Joy, and I will not be able to say her last name, uh, but it's something like Bugliami. Um, and she works at the MIT Media Lab. And what she did was she just looked at facial recognition software and she realized that it worked much, much better, like 99% of the time for white men, but it works very badly, like 65% of the time for black women. Wow. Um, and it's like, why does she have to figure this out? Why, you know, IBM, Google, the, these huge companies are developing the software and they're not even bothering to see for whom this algorithm fails. They should be doing this as par for the course. They should be doing it along gender lines, along, along race lines, around age, all those things, all the protected classes. So that's the second question. For whom does this fail? Does this fail more often for you know, protected classes in particular. Um, the third thing is we should be looking at algorithms and scrutinizing them and monitoring them for long-term negative consequences. And that would be where the Facebook algorithm comes in. Like, what are the long-term consequences of this kind of stuff? Are you going to erode democracy? Are you going to get people to believe more in fake news and conspiracy theories? And I think the answer to all that is yes. Yeah. And we should have seen that coming. We should have that monitor in place. And there's no excuse at this point for us to start doing that. And the fourth thing is, um, and this won't surprise you, whose rights are being violated? Constitutional rights, legal rights, human rights. Does this algorithm have the potential to violate people's rights and in what situation? And how do you keep track of that? And how do you ameliorate that problem? So those are the four things that we should be addressing with algorithms. Well, Kathy O'Neill, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a true pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you find the conversations that I have on The Electorate helpful and you'd like to help support the women whose work I feature here, please subscribe to The Electorate on Apple Podcasts. It's free and it's easy. It takes less than five seconds to subscribe. Just hit the little subscribe button in your podcast app and you're done. When you subscribe to The Electorate, it helps our ratings rise and it also helps more people discover us. I truly appreciate your support and thank you so much again for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight.